0: Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, I also want to say welcome to the chapel, and if, if we've not met, my name is Steve Elworth. I'm the Chapel Segan site pastor here, and let me thank Dave for preaching last week. I was over at LSU preaching while our lead pastor, Kevin, uh, was out of town, and Dave did a great job. So, so glad that as we, uh, as we leave and switch around and, and get to travel, we have lots of people that can step up and preach God's word. It's great to be a part of a church that, that has that. if we've not met, I would love to shake your hand out in the lobby after the service and greet you and help you get connected here at the chapel. But if you have been with us, we've been in a series in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And what we've been seeing is that this functions as an introduction not just to the Bible, but it it functions as an introduction to all that God wants us to understand, both in the world and about him and about ourselves and all of the things that we need to know about the rest of the Bible and the rest of history God gives us as a foundation in these first 11 chapters. And that's what we've been spending our time in What we've seen is that God not only made the world in perfection and gave us everything that we needed, created us in his image, but sin came into the world and tarnished everything. And we've seen how sin has radically snowballed just in the last couple of chapters. We saw Adam and Eve disobey God by eating the fruit that they were forbidden to eat from, and and that snowballed into Cain killing his brother, and then that snowballed into Lamech singing about God's, or about mankind's celebration of murder. Sin continues to snowball. And what we're going to see today is that sin is actually going to continue. And I'm realizing that my little fan here, if you didn't know this was a fan, is blowing into my microphone, probably because Dave last week is a lot taller than me. Uh, which I, I hear he made fun of me for. So we'll put that down a little bit. So I apologize if you have to re, you know, reorient the angle of your necks as well, as you have to look down at, at me. But as we continue to go through Genesis, what we're going to see is that sin actually continues to get worse. Things continue to get bad. And today we're going to find ourselves in actually some very difficult texts. The text that we're going to be in today is all of Genesis chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, and these happen to be verses in the Bible that are the kinds of verses that as people read them and ask questions, they don't really want to believe the Bible anymore. These are the kind of verses that as we approach them, they're going to raise questions that we might not find the perfect answers for. There's going to be things that don't seem like they make a lot of sense. there are going to be things that we have to look at through a different set of eyes, through a a different worldview. And they're questions that we bring to texts like these that, quite frankly, the Bible is not interested in answering. And these are the types of texts that make it difficult to have conversations with people that don't know Jesus. These are the types of texts that the world will throw at the church and say, what do you do with this? Now, the temptation would probably be for a lot of pastors to avoid these sections of the Bible. My temptation was to have this week be the week that I had Dave preach. But uh, instead, we're going to dive into it. And my hope for us is that we grow in confidence that this is God's word. All of it. There are difficult parts of it. There are parts that we don't always understand. There are parts that don't make sense to us. There are parts that don't always feel good for us. But all of this is God's word. So I want to say from the outset today that this message is going to feel a little bit different if you're new with us, I'm so glad that you're here. This message is going to feel a little different than what we normally talk about. I'm not going to give us clear handlebars as we go through the text and understand everything that's going on here. I have two goals for us. My first goal is that we talk about these, diff- these difficult texts. Not so that we wind up with perfect answers. I'm not going to promise you that I have the right answers for some of the questions that we're going to look at. But I want us to see that this really is God's word. And I want us to grow in confidence together that all that God has spoken is his word and is good and is fruitful for us. The second thing that I want to do is I want to model for us what it looks like to approach difficult texts in the scriptures. Because when we come with our modern American scientific, logical, reasonable lenses, we can tend to write off parts of the Bible that don't make sense to us. Or we can say things like, well, it's in the Bible, so I guess it's good. I don't need to understand these things. And what I want to model for us is that we can actually approach these texts, even the hard ones, with confidence that God has something for us, that he wants to use his entire word to help his church know him better. So there's two principles that I'm gonna be using that are undergirding a lot of what I'm gonna say. And I wanna share them with you from the outset because they're not just good for difficult texts, but they're, they're good principles as we approach the Bible in any kind of study. And this is the first. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. We are not the Bible's original audience. The original audience that the authors of the Bible that God spoke through and they wrote were writing to an actual audience that had a linguistic and cultural and historical context. And sometimes we need to do the hard work to figure out what was God's word to the original audience so that we can find out what his word is for us. The Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. The second principle is when we are able, we need to let the Bible interpret itself. There are many parts of the scriptures throughout that talk about different verses, especially as we look at the New Testament, we can see other parts of the Old Testament that the New Testament writers are interpreting for us and helping us understand. So we are going to do both of those things today as we jump in. So again, this is gonna feel a little different, but are we ready to approach the word? Let me pray for us. God, we're so grateful for Jesus. And I pray that you would glorify the name of your son today. God, if there's anything I've planned to say that's not of you, take it out of your mind. Or if there's anything you want to say that I've not thought of, would you come and speak? Because we want to hear your voice even in the parts of the scriptures that are sometimes difficult for us to understand. God, we believe that you have spoken and you have a word for us today. So may we all, including myself, hear your words and be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to read the whole chapter of chapter five for you. And yes, it is 32 verses of a genealogy. And every time we've approached genealogies in the last several months, I have made the case that these are really important. There's things that God has for us, and I don't wanna undermine all that I've been saying by saying, oh, we're not gonna read that because it might be boring to our American ears. So we're going to read the whole thing. And here's my assignment for you as we read this. I want you to be paying attention to two things. I want you to listen for patterns. Listen for the things that are repeated because often God communicates emphasis through the things that are repeated. I also want you to be listening for breaks from the pattern, because if there is a pattern and there are exceptions to it, that's something else that we can be paying attention for. So dial in as we listen to some great hard-to-pronounce names. Chapter 5 of Genesis, in verse 1, it says this, This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. After he became the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years and then he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived 895 years and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God... Then he was no more, because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah, and he said, "'He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed.'" After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, there's a lot there. There are a lot of words and verses, but there is a lot packed into there. So why does it take up an entire chapter, right? This, we've been saying that these 11 chapters are so important in the introduction of what God has for us as we read his word. So why all of this time spent on genealogies? What is the purpose of a genealogy? Well, there are several purposes for genealogies to the Hebrews, to the people of Israel, and the first is the most obvious. It brings us from Adam to Noah. These are gonna be the two most important characters that we encounter in these books so far. And it's helpful for us as readers to have a straight line drawn between them. But genealogies also give us some other bits of information. Hebrew genealogies were not written to cover all of history. They were not written to give us every family name, every story, every year. And in fact, if you look at different source texts for chapter 5, we're actually going to find different amounts of years for some of these different people. And for American precision, that's a problem. But remember, the Bible was not written to us. It was written to us for us Hebrew genealogies are not interested in American precision but what they show us is through the names and through the literary structure that's used the author is giving us some information that we need to know and we'll get to some of those names in a minute but first let me address a question that maybe popped into your minds were these dudes really that old like, all of these years that were given, like, or is this actually how old some of these people were? To an American scientific lens, this seems problematic. We can't run some experiments and figure out what that looked like. But the reality is, the biblical answer is, yes, they were that old. Now, there are a lot of reasons that Bible interpreters have tried to give for how these these people lived this long. Some people would say that sin's corrosive nature had not fully come into humanity. It was slowly getting worse and worse and worse, so the decay of the human body wasn't as fast. Some people say that maybe the pre-flood environment in the world allowed for people to live longer, but as we'll see after the flood, there's still people that live a long time. My favorite interpretation of this is that this is a a device that God's using in history for us to look back and actually see how bad sin really is. That we can look back and see that sin really does corrode everything, that being made in the image of God and walking with God in perfection would have led to great potential that the human body now, because of sin, cannot experience. And we get to see from how far we have fallen so that we can get into our minds and into our worldview that sin really is that bad. That sin really is that corrosive. But whatever reason is there, and there's good support for those reasons and and even more. I don't know the actual answer, but In our worldview, as we look at this narrative, this is something that God is using to tell his story. These people really were that old. Now, the purpose of the genealogy, as we said, was to draw a line from Adam to Noah, but there seems like there's a pretty clear focus in this genealogy. Death. If you were listening to those patterns, you saw in most of these People, except for one that we'll talk about in a minute, it ended and he died. So far in the Genesis account, we've been seeing individual sins and individual consequences. But now we're getting to see the collective nature of sin and the collective consequences on the human race. It does not matter what the individuals throughout history have done, good or bad, death is reigning. Death touches all of them. No matter what they had individually done, we're seeing the collective, cohesive, historical element of death. But we do have a couple exceptions. And the first is this dude Enoch. Verse 24, Enoch walked faithfully with God and then he was no more because God took him away. Death is the clear focus of this genealogy, of this chapter, but we have a guy that it is not included in his story. So the author of the book of Hebrews gives us a little bit more information because there's a not a lot in that text. Hebrews 11 verse 5 and 6 says this, "By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who had pleased God." And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly Seek him. What did that look like? The teleportation or whatever you wanna say of Enoch. We're not given that information, but I think there's a very clear reason that God gives us this little snippet. Death is the focus, but death is not ultimate. Death is the focus, but death is not ultimate. Death is not the ultimate destiny for the human race. Though all of us will die, we only see two exceptions in the history of mankind that don't, Enoch and later Elijah. God is not, as a normal way of doing things, in the teleportation business. But death is not ultimate. That is not the ultimate destiny for the human race. In the midst of chaos and death, Enoch walked with God. And here's what God wants us to know in chapter five. From Adam to Noah, death reigns, but hope remains. It's your first point if you're taking notes. From Adam to Noah, death reigns, but hope remains. And that's the same position that we find ourselves in today, isn't it? Death is reigning. There is still so much chaos all around us. Death, pain, suffering, destruction, illness, addiction, crime, anxiety, depression. The effects of sin, the effects of death are reigning in this world, and yet God has revealed himself so that his people can walk with him. And we see Enoch walked with God in the midst of all of this chaos. Now walking with God is not your teleportation ticket. Walking with God is not the way to escape the world. It's not a ticket to leave all of this behind, but it is a ticket for hope, that God has not abandoned the human race, that God is still there and has an ultimate purpose for humanity. It's not a ticket to escape the world, but in some senses it is a ticket to escape some parts of the world. Listen to what the apostle Peter says about this. In Second in Peter chapter one, he says, "His divine power, talking about God, has given us everything that we need for a godly life, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. There's some sense in which through Jesus and everything that God has given us through Jesus that we can escape, we can turn our backs, we can repent, we can run from the sin and the evil desires and the corruption that is in this world as we walk with God. He's given us everything that we need to do so. Though death reigns, God has revealed himself to us that we could walk with him. There's another exception, another standout phrase in this genealogy. Not someone that escapes, but a picture of more hope. In verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and he said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. If you were with us two weeks ago, the name Lamech is not unfamiliar. We saw a different Lamech in Cain's genealogy in chapter 4, and that Lamech also had something to say. Here's the little ditty that he sang. Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. That's a different Lamech, but clearly God wants us to pick up on this because in the two genealogies in chapter four and chapter five, there's only two people that actually say something and they're both named Lamech. One is a poem about vengeance, celebrating murder. But there's someone who thousands of years later, who was in the line of Lamech, who was in the line of Noah, had something else to say. In Matthew 18, it says this, "'Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, "'Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister "'your sins against me, up to seven times?' "'Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, "'but seventy-seven times.'" It's so interesting to me that when sin is reigning and we're seeing the effects of death everywhere, that what is being celebrated is vengeance. But when Jesus comes through the line of the good Lamech, it's not vengeance that is being multiplied, it's forgiveness that is being multiplied. God is showing us that there is hope. Hope remains. But though hope remains, things are still pretty bad. So buckle your seatbelts for chapter six. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of human were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. We're going to talk about that. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim will on the earth in those days. We're gonna talk about that. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings. We're gonna talk about that. And his heart was deeply troubled So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now that we're all built up and encouraged, let's talk about it. These eight verses bring up a lot of questions. Who were the sons of God? Who were the Nephilim? What does it mean that God regretted that he had made mankind? We're going to talk about some of those things. I want to try to explain some of it. But before I do, I don't want us to get lost in these strange details and questions and miss the point. Because there's a pretty clear point that God is giving us here in these verses. These eight verses are here to show us how bad sin can get. The point of these verses is to reveal the wickedness of the human race. That word wickedness seems a little intense, doesn't it? But it's the right word to describe humanity and rebellion against God. And I think in American churches, we have lost a bit of what it means for sin to be in this world. We think of sin as just this list of things that we're not supposed to do. But as we're seeing in Genesis, it is the corrosive nature that affects everything. Without God, the natural default position for the human race is wickedness. And it's wickedness defined by God because here's the theological gymnastics we do. We have our prioritized list of things that are bad and some things that are worse. And because I haven't done things that are worse, I feel like I'm pretty good. And compared to somebody else, I'm pretty good. And actually, I do a lot for God. I add some value to him and and his church. So I'm actually in a pretty good position. But all sin, no matter what our list looks like, all sin is against a perfect, holy, infinite God. And therefore, every offense against him is eternally wicked. This is how the Bible talks about sin. Sin. And things got so bad that God destroyed the world with a global flood. We're going to talk about that next week. But first, a few hard concepts that I want to try to shed some light on. We're introduced to a a few players here. The sons of God and the Nephilim. Who are they? Anyone have any ideas? That'd That'd be helpful. Well, some say that the sons of God are the sons of Cain in the bad lineage, and the daughters of humans were daughters in Seth's line, in the good line, and their intermarriage and having children together corrupted the good line, and there was some genetic deformity that caused the Nephilim, which that word means either fallen ones or giants. And based on the rest of the biblical narrative, it looks like the Biblical texts would favor the etymology of the word being giants. Don't really know how to get my head around that one, but some say that the sons of God were evil kings that ruled and were worshipped as gods, and they took whatever and whoever they wanted and continued in the polygamy that the bad Lamech introduced. Some say that the sons of God were angels, Fallen angels that rebelled against God. Fallen angels coming down and using demonic activity in order to mate with humans. That, that's actually the best understanding based on the research and how the text is moving us forward. So are, are these fallen angels mating with humans or, or are these people that are possessed by fallen angels, by demons, like the ones that Jesus encountered throughout his life and ministry? Well, I take it that these are demon-possessed humans mixing with humanity in a way that God did not intend. How many times have we heard that sentence in church before? Passages in the New Testament help us understand this. In both Jude and Second Peter, there are specific statements made about this encounter that we can't really understand unless we see the angelic activity going on in Genesis. And in Jude, it says this, "...and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness." bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So what Jude is saying is that these angels had sinned by not keeping their proper dwelling, that they operated outside of God's order, And the fact that sexual deviance was alluded to in Sodom and Gomorrah shows us the grave sin that they were a part of. But how this union came about and and what the progeny of this union actually looked like, I don't know. And the scriptures don't give us a lot of answers to it, but we see that it was out of bounds. In 2 Peter, it says this, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. These fallen angels were involved in some extraordinary sin and were confined by God, waiting till in final judgment. Now, You may be feeling uncomfortable with with some of these things, but these are some texts that we need to wrestle with and the New Testament gives us some insight into and therefore it's important in God's redemptive narrative. But it's a lot for me to get my head around. But here's what I think we can confidently say. Before the flood, there was something going on that we don't see today that was one of the measures that God used to show how wicked the world had gotten. If two New Testament authors talk about it, they're knitting it together in their telling of the grand narrative of Scripture, then it is important. But we need to understand that when we get to hard texts like this, or if you're out in the world and one of your children or coworkers or neighbors asks you about some of these hard questions, what we should not do is just write it off because it doesn't make sense in our American scientific, logical, reasonable world view. We need to see this and everything in this book as God's word. And if you struggle with that concept, we we did a series, a four-part series on what is the Bible several months ago. You can find it on our website and get some some fuel to understand what we mean by all of this is God's word, but based on the things we said in that series, all of this is God's inspired word to us, and he has it for us and for our good. Even if we can't always find the perfect answers, the purpose for us At least here in Genesis, is to amplify in our minds how bad and how wicked the world had gotten. The message to us is the second point on your outline sin brings global wickedness. Sin brings global wickedness. And it had gotten so bad that God makes this statement The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled. Now, the cursory reading of that in English, that sounds problematic too. Well, you're saying that God regretted that he made humans? Did he regret that he made me? I thought God was a God of love. Well, when we say we regret something, what we mean is after we've done an action and realize that the consequences were something we did not like, we look back and say, knowing what I know now, I would not have done that thing, right? But that's not what God's talking about here. God has full knowledge of all future consequences and therefore already knows the consequences before he does the action. So that can't be what God is talking about here. So what does it mean? Well, I think we actually get to see an amplified heart of God here, his love for humanity. Because what we see is the wickedness of the people that he has made, it brings him pain. He's grieved. He's sad. It doesn't mean he thinks he made a mistake. He knew it was going to happen, and he would have done it the same way, given an infinite amount of opportunities but he's grieved. Now, Pastor John Piper gives... What I find is a helpful analogy here. If you are punishing your child for something that they have done and the result of that punishment is they cry or throw a temper tantrum or have to suffer the consequences of me- missing a friend's birthday party or, or something like that, their pain grieves you as a parent. You, you get sad. You wish you didn't have to do it. And maybe you even feel a bit of regret over having done it. But given a hundred opportunities, you would have done the same thing because you understand that your role as a parent is to punish your children so that they can grow and that they can mature. And if, if God has, or if we have the capacity for that kind of emotion, surely God does. So what we see is God's grief over humanity's wickedness shows his love for humanity. It doesn't show that he's turned his back. It doesn't show that he's hands off. It shows his love for humanity. And so that's where we stand in our journey through Genesis so far. We're standing on the precipice of a great fall where God will come and judge the world with a worldwide flood and destroy most of the life that was existing. And we'll look at that next week. But as God has always shown himself to do through the scriptures, he yet again does not leave us without hope. And hope here comes the same way hope always comes. Hope comes through grace. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The words that are in Hebrew here make it very clear that Noah did not win favor with God. He did not earn favor with God. He found favor with God. This is the Old Testament understanding of grace. And grace is a churchy word that means unmerited favor from God. It means getting things that we do not deserve. And it's clear from this verse that God or that Noah did not earn favor from God. He was not God's only hope to save humanity. That position is reserved for God himself. Noah just happened to be the guy that God showered blessing and grace and favor upon. And as we'll see next week, God doesn't save Noah through Noah God provides the means of escape through the ark that he instructs Noah to build. God gives grace. God provides the means of escape. God always is the one who provides the means of escape. He never leaves it up to us to try to figure it out. It's all about grace. Even in Genesis chapter five and six, it's all about grace Even in these chapters about rampant wickedness, the arrow points to grace. All we bring to the table on our own is wickedness. God brings the grace. For Noah, it was through an ark, but now for us, once for all, it's through Jesus. We read Ephesians 2, 3, and 7 at the beginning of our service, but here's the next two verses that you have probably heard before. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We get to come to God the same way that Noah did by grace, by God's provision through the means that God prescribes. Jesus is our ark. So a bit different of a sermon today. Lots of names, lots of time, lots of years, lots of wickedness, lots of death, difficult concepts. But what I don't want us to miss is it all has one point, They lead us to the throne of God to receive the grace that he offers, to receive the grace that he prescribes. So let me encourage you today, receive the grace of God. If you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you need grace today same as you did every day previously in your life. And God continues to provide it. And if you're here and you've not given your life to Jesus, if you've not said yes to him, if you've not come to Him and said, I need you, then let me encourage you as well, receive the grace of God throughout the history of the world. And in every piece that we see in the scriptures, God is the one that reserves the right to prescribe the way that we escape, to prescribe the way that we come to Him. And it never has ever had anything to do with what we can do, with what we can bring to the table, with how we can clean up our own mess. It has always had to do with grace. Until Jesus came, it was pointing forward to the grace that Jesus would bring. Now, post-resurrection, we get to look back and see the grace that Jesus has prescribed. But it's always been about Jesus. And if you've not given your life to him, receive his grace because he set up the path for you. He died on the cross to pay for your sins and rose from the dead to give you new life. Don't try to run into it as if you earned it or could do something, because the only thing that we bring is the wickedness in our own hearts. We open our hands and we walk into it because we did not deserve it, but God in His grace and in His mercy allowed us to step in only because of what Jesus has done. Jesus is our ark. Let me encourage you today to receive that grace. Let me pray for us. God, we're so grateful for Jesus. We thank you that you did not leave us in our mess, but you came after us. Even though we had nothing to bring to the table, it's only because of your love and your grace and your mercy that we can come and approach you. So God, would you solidify it in our hearts And even in this moment, as we pray and as we sing, would you allow us to receive your grace, to step into it, to know how good you are, how sufficient and transformative your grace is? Break through our hearts that try to earn more of your favor. Give us grace to receive. What Jesus has accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.